Well, good morning, Parkview. Good morning, indeed. My name is Thomas Hoke. I am one of the pastors here. I'm the newest pastor here, actually. And so if my face is not a familiar one to you, I definitely want to meet you. Please come up to me after the service. I'd love to get to know you. I'll be up here. Um, But I thought, if that's sort of too much to ask, I thought, I'll make myself vulnerable first. And I thought I'd do that by sharing with you the two most terrifying words I've heard. Okay. Well, let me be a little more specific. The two most terrifying words I have ever heard, well, I had ever heard in 10th grade. Okay, a little more specific. Okay, one more thing. The two most terrifying words I'd ever heard in 10th grade, math class. Okay. And those two words were geometric proof. Anyone? Okay. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you don't. I am actually one of those who don't know what I'm talking about because, well, that's the whole point of the story because I don't remember what a geometric proof is all about and that's why those words are so terrifying because I remember a warm afternoon. It was about 1.30. I'd had a big lunch and it was one of those days I was at West High. Mr. T was teaching and um, it was one of those days where they'd turn the heat on but it wasn't quite cool enough that you didn't quite need it in this particular room so it was real warm, real full and I'll just be honest with you guys, I spaced out. I wasn't paying attention. Sorry, teachers in the room. My apologies. But for somewhere between 30 seconds and 30 minutes, I just, I was out of there, okay? And I was brought to an abrupt attention when Mr. T, I can still see him in my mind, West High, just pointed with this piece of chalk right at me and said, Thomas, why don't you come up here and show us how to do it? Okay. You feel that? You feel the pit in your stomach? Oh, no. No, please. Anyone else, right? And he said, just as I have done it, you do it. And I'm sure my face looks something like this. And so he said, oh, come on, come on, you can, just as I have done it, you, you do it. Well, I was not a particularly wise 16-year-old, and so I did what maybe you might have done. I just winged it. And uh, that is probably why it was so terrifying for me, because I had no clue what was going on. But if I had been a bit wiser, I would have backed up, and I would have said, I'm sorry, Mr. T, it is warm, I am full, and I am not sure I understand. Can you back up? Because I, I can't really do just as you have done, unless I know what you have done. Now, this is all relevant, because last week, Doug Schillinger took us through John 13, 34 through 35, in the first sermon of our DNA trait, Love God's people. Love God's people. And this is the second week. And in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Love God's people. And he says this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So this brings about a big question. How are we to love God's people? How are we to love one another if we are not 100% sure what Jesus' love for us, his church, looks like? And so this week, we want to sort of take a step back and say, what should our love for one another look like now that we understand what Jesus' love for us looks like? And I want to show you one big point, and that is that to love God's people, we must pour out the same love that Christ has poured out for us. To love God's people, to express that trait of a disciple, we must pour out the same love that Christ has poured out for us. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 30, if you want to flip there now or on your phone, however you do it. Um, And we're going to see four key insights into what Christ's love for us looks like, and therefore what our love for one another 
and of course, onto the watching world will also look like. Now, some of you may hear Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. That kind of sounds like, oh, isn't that a marriage passage about wedding? And uh, let me just read the first line to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And yes, this passage certainly has a lot to say about marriage, but I want to tell you, this is incredibly important to understand, that this is not primarily a passage about marriage. It is primarily a passage about the gospel. He says, our marriages, and really any marriage, ought to look like, between husband and wife, just like the relationship that exists between Jesus and his people, the church. And so it's not, it's not hard to see that just by looking at sort of this side of that analogy, of that little equation, we can really learn a lot about how Jesus loves us and therefore how we ought to love one another. So let me read this text to you. Ephesians 5, 25 through 30 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is God's word. It's good for us. It's good to obey it. It shows us the most wonderful way to live in, obedi- in obedience to God. And now let us pray. Lord, you are good to us. You have treated us, as John said earlier, much better than we deserve. You have poured out your love. You have poured your love into us as a people through your Son, and you have filled us with your love through your Spirit. And we pray that in hearing your word today, we would obey it to love one another, not keeping the love that you have shown us all for ourselves, but pouring it out in obedience to the King who has poured himself out for us. Let us follow you, we pray. Amen. Now, the first unique aspect of Christ's love for us that we see in this passage is that Christ-like love knows others. Christ-like love knows others. Now, I don't have a specific verse to pick out to, to demonstrate this to you, but I think all I need to do to prove my point here is to ask a simple question. Does anyone here, don't raise your hand, does anyone here know of a husband who does not know his wife? No, no one does, because this whole passage really hangs together on the basis of this one fact. You have to know the person that you love, and this is not just sort of a generic point, but this is, this is very important for us. We must know one another in the church. We must know in order to love. Uh, and, and I specifically want to point this out. I, I probably didn't have to, but we need to point this out. Because we find ourselves in, you know, Western culture, uh, we have... T- we tend to have a very individualistic way of thinking about our relationship with God. Uh, we might think something along these lines. As long as I, it's just me, right? Me, personal, my Christian, my private faith, all I need is my Bible and Jesus, and really that's the full Christian experience is just, is just that. However, if we are to love one another, we must know one another. And so it can't just be simply that. We must know one another. And this isn't just, I'm not just making sort of a logical point or a sociological point, anything like that. Um, This is something that we learn from Jesus. Jesus does not sort of stay up in heaven, away from all the muck and the mire down here on earth, uh, and sort of send redemption from from afar, you know. Uh, He does not phone it in. 
Uh, in fact, he, he descends. Before Jesus went to the cross, which was horrible, he first had to go from heaven down to the cursed, you know, to broken, sinful earth. And, and why? Hebrews 2 actually tells us, it says, he had to be made like his siblings in every respect so he might be merciful and faithful high priest. The book of Hebrews is really interesting on this. It says that Jesus became a man so that he could sympathize with our weakness. That, that he could know what it is like to be us and therefore love us. Now, if we are to imitate Jesus' love for us to one another, we must know one another. Christ-like love knows others. Now, uh, just this last week, I got a letter in the mail, and I got excited because it, it just sort of looked like a plain letter. I brought it with me. And it sort of had this sort of handwriting, scripty font, and I was like, oh, this is wonderful. No return address, but I was like, this is great. Must be from someone I know. Must be a nice letter, a little note of encouragement maybe. Someone that loves me, right? But then I looked down. Of course, I got the address right because it came to me. And then I saw, who is it addressed to? It's not, it's, it's addressed to our neighbor. You ever get that? Our neighbor. But they, they sort of dressed it up to make it look like it was just for me. And so all my excitement about this letter was really for not. The second that I saw our neighbor, that sort of generic thing, I knew this is not, it's not really love, right? It's not a love letter for sure. Because if, if you want to love someone, you have to at least know their name. And of course, the, the more you love someone, the more you know about them. We must know one another if we are to love one another and exhibit this trait of loving God's people. Researchers at the University of Kansas did a, a little study with a very descriptive title, which I really like. The title of it was, How Many Hours Does It Take to Make a Friend? Yeah. And they discovered that on average, it takes about 50 hours to go from being a casual acquaintance with someone, 50 hours of direct sort of face-to-face contact with someone to go from casual acquaintance to, or from acquaintance to casual friend, 50 hours. Another 40 to become what they called a real friend, not a Facebook friend, but a real friend, and then, and then 200 hours total to become what they called a close friend. We might call that confidant, someone you're really close to, you can share struggles with, stuff like that. So I did a little bit of math. So if you rely on 15 minutes of sort of pre- and post-church chit-chat, you know, with, with the people here, and you come every single week and talk to the same one person, it will take you seven years to make one real friend. Seven years, wow. It will take you 15 years to make a close friend. Yikes. Now, that's quite a while. Uh, we don't have many, much time to make that, you know, that depth of friendship. However, and this is a, I'm glad this comes first, because look around. There might be 500 people in this room. You, you can't sink 200 hours into every relationship in this room. We need somewhere where we can commit to one another, uh, apart from just the sun service, and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out those hours. I'm going to pour out that time. Time is important, right? We only have so much of it. I'm going to pour out my time into these specific relationships. We need, you know, sort of a little relational greenhouse where we invest in those relationships and we hope to see them flourish with the fruit of, of following Jesus, of the gospel. And that, my friends, is why we have community groups. Yes, of which I find myself the pastor of community groups, along with John McHale. And so um, my first point here would be, if you are not in a community group, you've got to get into a community group. You have to get into a context where you can intentionally invest in those relationships. If we want to love one another, if we want to follow Jesus in this way, we, must, we simply must know one another. And so we must be in some separate context for it. And that's why I have a community group. So, number one, this is going to be 
the fastest time from me telling you something to you being able to act on it. Right in front of your seat, as John said, is the connect card. There's an option there. Join a community group. I encourage you, fill that out, turn it in, and we're excited for just the incredible tidal wave of new community groups that are spawned from this. The second thing would be if you're already in a group, which many, many, many of you already are in a community group, um, I would just encourage you to, to get to, know, to start to invest in, the, in that group. There's nothing that makes me more sure that a group, it, whether one I'm leading or anyone that I'm, I'm coaching, whatever, is growing in love for one another than when I see people spending time together outside of just the Sunday or whenever you meet gathering, getting to know one another, investing that time. So before you go to your next meeting, make a plan to do that. Get to know those people in your group better. Part for you. God himself has poured this love into our hearts. One way we're called to pour out that love to others is by knowing others. Because Christ-like love knows others, our love must know others as well. The second specific aspect of Christ's love that we see in this passage and we're called to imitate is that Christ-like love gives itself away. Gives itself away for others. And we see this in verse 25. Will you look with me? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what Jesus does for his church and therefore we must do for one another. And this word, uh, this phrase, gave himself up, I I did a little bit of study and it's very interesting because this phrase is never used again in the New Testament in this exact same way. Because it's, how it could be literally translated and almost every time that it's used, it's translated this way. Betrayed betrayed, as in you hand someone over to the police, to their enemies. This is not something that you would normally do to yourself, you know, reflexive. I hand myself over. What a, what a strange thing to do. Who hands themselves over? It's so unnatural. You don't, you hand your enemy over. You don't hand yourself over. Who gives up their own time? Who gives up their love? As an act of the will, they give it over. They don't have to be compelled. They just, they, they freely give it. it. And yet Jesus teaches us that if we are really following him, this is something we will do. And this is, this is the heart of this passage, really, because it's the heart of the gospel. In our flesh, in our sin, we, we do not naturally give over our love. We, we try to keep it. We want to keep it for ourselves. Uh, when people, we love when people serve us, and we sort of want to get it as, as, as low of a cost to us personally, um, you know, in relationships, social media, selfie, like me, you know, right? And yet, when the, the switch is flipped in our hearts, when Christ comes in and starts to pour love into our hearts, no longer are we sort of black holes for love, sucking it all in and trying to give as little out as possible. Rather, when we see Christ on the cross giving up his dearest relationship in the world, the switch is flipped, and rather than sucking in love, we exude love toward others. We hand it over willingly. We don't have to be compelled. And therefore, all of our love for one another must be modeled after this self-giving, self-donating love, an act of the will that gives itself over, not out of compulsion, but out of love for others. Uh, I heard an excellent illustration of this just um, in the past few weeks. A pastor in, t- in, uh, in New York shared about a story of this woman who was sort of a high-level, well, medium-level executive in a media company. 
and you know it was in New York, high pressure situation, every decision really important, and uh, you know you could you could lose your job just at the drop of a hat, you know very cutthroat, everything like that, and she made a huge mistake, made a huge mistake, and it was sure to cost the company a lot of money, and so she actually she came to work the next day, she brought her box, right? She said that's it, let me I'll just gather my things, whatever. Um, and she walked in, and her boss said, what are you doing? Why do you, why do you have a box? And she said, surely I'm fired. Surely my job is, you know, is over. And she, he said, what are, you ta- what are you about to talk about? No, 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 no. And she said, what? Why, why would it not be? What, what happened? Didn't you, you had to go before the board. You had to go. How did you explain this? And he said, look, no, don't worry about it. I took the blame. You know, this is part of the team I lead. This was my fault. And she said, what? What? Why would you hand yourself over for me? What? This isn't how bosses are supposed to work in this environment, right? You're supposed to sort of take all the credit you can get, and then, and then when something goes wrong, I lose my head, not you, right? You don't lose face. I, I get fired. And she kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him, and finally said, okay, since you've really pressed me, I'll tell you. Look, I'm a Christian, and I believe that I should, I should sort of take more, or I should give more out than I, than I take. And so I was, you know, that's why I was willing to sort of take the blame on this one. I'm not gonna, I wasn't going to feed into that culture, right? And she said, where do you go to church, right? That's got to be the next question. What, what kind of love could this be? And Parkview, if, if we're going to do the same thing, if we're going to hand ourselves over, as Jesus did for us, in love with our time, with our resources, all for love for one another, one thing that we must do is we must reject any kind of mercenary mindset when it comes to relationships with one another, especially in the church. The spirit of the age has taught us that the second you see something in this church or you see someone in this church or there's any issue that you don't like, it is time to go next door. It's time to leave. It's, I'm giving up. I'm cutting bait. I'm leaving, right? Anytime you, you get into a relationship and it starts to cost you more than, it, more than it benefits you, you say, that's it. Okay, I'm out, right? Now, I'm not saying there's never a time to... to to change or, or to leave a relationship. That's not the point. But we must ha- reject that mindset that this is how I'm going to operate. More, if it's not a net positive for me, I'm out. If we have love pouring into us and not, we're not just getting it horizontally from one another, then we'll be able to do this. If we don't, let us imitate Jesus by being willing to pour out for one another. What might this look like? When you're in your community group and someone comes into your group, who clearly they have deep needs. This is convicting for me. When someone comes in, they have deep needs. Do you feel yourself in your heart, someone you, you just know you're not going to get along with, do you feel your heart just sort of subtly pull away and say, oh, mm, are they really going to be in my group? Oof. What if instead, <laughs> preaching to myself here, we saw this as an opportunity to ask the Spirit to pour more love into our hearts? Parkview, God has poured his love into our hearts. One way we are called to pour out this love to others is by giving ourselves away for others. Christ-like love gives itself away. It's given itself away for us. That's what he has done for us, and therefore what we will do for others. The third aspect of Christ's love for us that we see in this passage is that Christ-like love promotes holiness in others. Christ-like love promotes holiness in others. We see this 25 through 27 says, look with me, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what we read. And then we see that he might sanctify her, 
This is a purpose statement. He says, He loved her that he might sanctify her, make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that is, he's, he's won her with the gospel truth, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, no sin, that she might be holy and without blemish. Holy and blameless, we might say. Husbands are to imitate this aspect of Christ's love, and therefore we are to imitate this aspect of Christ's love for one another. That true love always is pointing towards something. It's always doing something. It's aimed at holiness, specifically. And in order to understand this point, uh, we must ask ourselves, what is love? Right? What is love? It's crucial to get this right, because if we, if we rely on sort of a cultural assumption about what love is, we'll probably end up with something like, it makes people feel good, which is not bad always, right? And yet, that's, it can be sort of cotton candy. You fill yourself up with just, oh, I just feel good, feel good, all this sort of warm feelings, and it's, it doesn't really lead you anywhere. And if you eat too much cotton candy, well, it really goes bad for you. Our love must be more than that. It must, it must be something more. So what is love? Here's a simple definition. Love gives others, to love someone is to give them the greatest good for them. To love them is to, to give them the greatest good. Hmm. So therefore, if our love will always be inevitably based on what we believe to be the greatest good. How can we give something? We need to know what that good is. So this is a silly example, but if you have a friend who believes the greatest thing that they could possibly give you is um, a kick in the shin, <laughs> well, it's going to be very painful to be that person's friend. And yet, they will be enormously consistent because they're, they're giving you what they believe to be your greatest good. And that's a silly example, but you see the point. If we are really truly believe that the greatest thing that we can give one another is the gift of knowing Jesus, serving him, loving him, obeying him, then all of our love will be an act of counsel and it will always have an agenda. And, and therefore, the question is not what... The question is, what is our love aimed at? What is the point of our love? All of our acts of love are an act of counsel towards something. Friends, to follow Jesus is life and peace and freedom, true freedom, is, is to follow Jesus and to follow anything else, and we will all follow something. To follow anything else will be, will be hell. And therefore, all of our love must be patterned after this love that Jesus has that produces holiness in others. Does, let me back up. Does holiness sound sort of, that sounds kind of crusty, sound kind of, uh, don't think about, think about Jesus, who could, who could be the life of the party, and yet be completely obedient to, to God's will. Our love must produce holiness in others that pours out love, that produces something beautiful in others. That's not, it's not cold, right? And yet it's not only, it's not fluffy, it's not cotton candy. Uh, I had a coach in high school, a football coach, who I think really exemplified this. Now, um, Two big, uh, two big examples stick out in my mind. This guy really filled the gap in my life when, you know, I had a complicated fatherhood situation. He really showed me, showed me real love. And so these two examples, the first one was when I, I made a big mistake during football practice. And it wasn't just one of those sort of accidental, you're trying hard, but you screwed up. It was one of those ones where I was just being lazy and sort of entitled and I didn't do my job and I did, didn't even care. And I will never forget the way that he got in my face 
and just berated me in front of everyone. It was so public and embarrassing for me. Uh, the way that, and I just remember, st- I was just looking at the ground, and I, just, I couldn't look him in the face because I was just so, so embarrassed. I just felt so ashamed. And I remember him coming up. He said, no, look, look in my eyes. Look at me. You need to know. He, he was pointing out deep character flaw in me. I needed to grow, right? He was loving me. I didn't really get that at that moment, but he was loving me. And it might have been the same day, but I remember a different circumstance, and he, I did something really good. And in fact, it was sort of the exact opposite of the mistake I had made because I, I ran down the field and I blocked a guy. Whatever, it doesn't matter. It's football. But uh, he ran down the field too. And he said, oh my God, did everyone see what Thomas just did? Did everyone see? Everyone ought to do it like this. He was busting his rear, and he, he got down there, he did that. And man, if we all did that, that would be awesome. Public in his praise of me. And I just, oh, it sent me over the moon. And yet, think about this. If, if he had only sort of berated me publicly, or he had only just given me sort of effusive praise publicly, I, I never would become the man that I am today. I'm so thankful that his love was not just fluffy and it was not just all sort of hard. It, it was meaty, it was beefy. And I think this was actually an excellent example of the way we ought to love one another. It, it ought to be warm, right? We should have warmth and affection for one another. And if we truly love one another, when we see something wrong, when we see something that is not good in one another's lives, we will say something. A church that is orthodox in belief but relationally ice cold is not showing Christ-like love. On the other hand, a church that is so warm and cozy, so full of sort of affection for one another, cotton candy sort of love, and yet has abandoned truth, they, they are also not showing Christ-like love. We don't have to choose. Let us embrace the wholehearted love of Jesus. Some of us, now this is where you need to be very careful because it would be very easy to think about how this applies to your friend who needs to hear this. Avoid that. Some of us feel totally comfortable confronting others. Uh, it's maybe your hobby. No, it's too hard. Um, <laughs> no, but you might, you, you, you know, you, you don't feel bad. I'm just going to tell them the truth. I'm just going to be blunt. I'm just going to be honest. They may hate me afterward, but whatever. And I'll just tell them. Uh, whatever. And you need to learn to show affection. You need to actually love those people so that when you have to hurt them, it hurts you too. There may be some of us, on the other hand, for whom showing this sort of loving affection that Jesus has for us, it comes so natural, sort of the warm, loving embrace. And, but when it comes time to say some hard things, ah, this, this is not having too much love. This is a lack of love. We need Jesus to come and pour the love of Christ in our hearts that produces, that promotes holiness in others. We don't have to choose. We don't have to choose. Let us do both. Because Christ-like love is not cold, but it's not fluffy. It's meaty. It's thick. It's, it's beefy. It's robust. It has an aim to purify hearts, to warm them to Jesus. God has poured his love into our hearts, and one way we are called to pour out his love to others is to promote holiness in others. Christ-like love promotes holiness in others, and therefore ours ought to as well. And the last aspect of Christ's love for us in this passage that we're called to imitate is that Christ-like love gets by giving. Christ-like love gets by giving. This verse, in, if you want to look in verses 20 through 30 with me, it says, In the same way as Christ, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Hmm. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Hmm. Because we are members, one another, of his body. We are so joined together that to pour out love really is, is inseparable from receiving love. Hmm. Wow. So if this means, I'll, I'll give you a practical point before I even get into this. If you are hearing this sermon thinking, wow, Thomas, you are really calling us upward. You're saying, wow, we have to do all these things, know and promote holiness and all this stuff. And wow, if I really do all this, I'm going to pour myself out. And at the end of this, I'm just going to feel so empty because I've just been pouring, pouring, pouring. And I'm not getting what I need. And here's Paul saying, he's actually preempted your question, your concern. He says, the way to be filled, paradoxically, the way to be filled is to be empty. Hmm. And this paradox is not, it's like my second point, it's not just at the heart of this passage for no reason. It's because this is the heart of the gospel. Wow. And, and understanding this point actually reorients every other point that I've made. Because at every point, I've said, Christ-like love does this for others. Christ-like love does X, does Y, does Z, it promotes one, it does all these things for others. And yet here's Paul saying, you know, that whole category of other people in the church outside of you who, you know, you could do things for them or you could not, but you sort of choose. He says, let's just get rid of that category because here's the thing. To exhibit Christ-like love, it's not that we must love others. Rather, it's, it's that we must identify so deeply in our spirit that is, that is binding us together with our fellow people that loving them is inseparable from loving ourselves. Now, Paul knew I would have trouble getting this across, and so he gave me a handy metaphor right in the text. He said, because we're members of his body. And this, is, this is one of one of my favorite sort of images that Paul gives us in, in all of his letters, is that the church is like this big body, you know, kind of like a big Frankenstein thing where he's taken all these dead parts, dead people like us, and put them together, and Jesus is the head of it, and, and we're also, we sort of work together with Jesus, all following Jesus, animated by his spirit, right? And we walk around and we serve and we love this world and we do just like Jesus did. Well, his, the point, and as it applies here, is this. Imagine you're the kidney, right? You're the kidney and you hear, oh, the liver needs some blood. Okay. And you say, mm, well, I could give the liver some blood, but then I might not have enough for me. Okay, so I'll give it some. I don't know. I'll just keep all the blood. I'm going to keep all the blood. The liver can sort of do its own thing. It'll find blood. It'll find blood. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Uh, but I'm going to keep mine. Will that go very well for the kidney? No, is the answer. <laughs> because if it keeps it all for itself, not only will that, it'll actually be bad for the, the kidney, it will actually kill the liver. And what will happen to the kidneys if the liver is killed? And th this is how connected Paul sees us as members one another in Christ. That when we see others suffering, we ourselves suffer. When we see others who are, who are doing amazing, who are seeing God's blessings, who are growing in Christ-likeness, who are, who are growing, we, we also are doing, we say, wow, we got to celebrate that because I'm celebrating. It's, see, we are so connected that our joys and our pains are, are one with one another. And therefore, we, on the other hand, when we hear, can you imagine the kidney saying, I hear the liver has cancer. Woo, too bad for the liver. That would be utter insanity. It would be utter insanity. Look around at these people in this room. 
when, when they grow in holiness, we all grow. When they fall and they are not following Jesus, we all suffer. We are one body. These are our fellow members, our fellow. To not care when they fall is, would be so foolish. To, to not celebrate when they are doing well would, would be to miss the point. Think about, think about your thermostat at home. Probably most, of, for many of us, our thermostat for the first time kicked on in the, in the past week or two because it's gotten kind of chilly. And why did the thermostat kick on? It's because the heat that, had been, that was in it began to, to leak out. Actually, it wasn't until the heat in the house reached a certain lowness that the furnace was kicked on. In fact, it had to be emptied in order to be filled. Our hearts connected to Jesus' love are like this. If we are satisfied to sort of stay lukewarm and not pour out our love, there's a good chance if you're not experiencing Christ's love in a real way, this is challenging, but could it be that we, we haven't been willing to pour out and therefore sort of have the furnace of God's love kick in? But when we do, Parkview, when we pour ourselves out in love, God turns on the furnace of his grace and fills us to overflowing. At the heart of all this is not a need to just, just to love one another, just to be socially connected, or to, just to, to connect with one another. The need, the most deep need for us to love God's people is to know how much we are loved by God. And if you walk away from this feeling, sermon feeling like I've just asked you, I've just loaded you up with requirements and, and commands, then I have been a poor communicator in these last 25 minutes or so. Because relying on our hearts alone to produce Christ-like love is like asking a leopard to change its spots. It's just not in its DNA. It's not a matter of effort. But loving others is in our DNA because we have had a heart transplant from the king. One of my favorite TV shows uh, is this sort of um, sleight of hand magic TV show uh, where this guy will do little tricks and people just be sort of amazed because it's, it's hidden camera, they don't know they're on a TV show and stuff. And one, one, of, the, one of the little tricks they did recently was he, he had a fruit stand and they had oranges and stuff, and you could come up and, you know, he would uh, juice, juice oranges for you. And what he did was he took a little nozzle, and he sort of drilled it into the side of the orange. And then he, from under the table, like a good sort of magician does, he brought out a gallon-sized jug. And he took this one orange, and he went, <sighs> and then from that one orange, it produced a whole gallon of juice. And the, the two women who had come up for a cup of juice said, oh, oh my God, is that what, you just made a whole gallon of juice from one orange? Where did all the juice come from? And they were, of course, they were amazed. Oh my gosh, look at what you've done. Where did all that juice? And when our hearts pour out Christ-like love to others of the quantity and quality that I have described here, they will have no choice but to say, where did all of that love come from? Because it could not come from a human heart alone. When the Spirit comes into our lives, people will say, it looks like you are just bleeding yourself dry. And we will say to them, I don't have to bleed myself dry because someone has been bled dry for me. When the Spirit comes into our hearts and pours this kind of love, this kind of love, love that knows others, love that promotes holiness in others, love that pours itself out for others, it's not a matter of effort, it's not a matter 
It's a matter of what's in our DNA, and that is what Christ has given us through his spirit, the love that pours out to others. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you that you never require of us what you will not provide in us. And you have given us this kind of love. You have known us so deeply. You have paid the ultimate price to know us. Lord, you have poured yourself out for us on the cross. Lord, you have, you have washed us in your blood. Promote, you have made us holy. And Lord, you, are, you have connected yourself to us so deeply by your spirit. We pray only that you would help us to pour out this love to others, Lord. Let us not be cul-de-sacs of your love, but let us experience what it means to love one another by connecting with you and therefore pouring out this kind of love for others. We pray in your name, amen.